Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, today on Backstory, I have two incredible books, both novels, both multi-perspective creations, and both exploring issues of class, race, capitalism, and many other things besides, all through the lens of complex, engaging storytelling. They're both really, really excellent examples of what fiction can do to tell bigger stories and shape empathetic readers. The Farm, written with the tension of a thriller, is largely set in Golden Oaks, a high-tech surrogacy clinic, or The Farm, as one host calls it, that delivers children to the uber-rich while completely controlling the lives of its hosts, many from migrant backgrounds. The book winds through the lives of four characters and through them looks at the intersections of power, money, class and race, and how that plays out in the extremity of of the labour of childbearing and caring in an unfair world. But coming up soon, Meg Mundell will join me to talk about her book, The Trespassers, set in a not-too-difficult-to-imagine dystopic future where the United Kingdom Union has broken up and is now in the grip of a pandemic. A group of migrants leave aboard a ship, the steadfast, to make a new life far away from sickness, loss and devastation in Australia where there are still opportunities to farm food and make a living. But on the journey over, someone is murdered and people start getting desperately ill. Following the journey of nine-year-old Cleary, Billy, a former nurse fleeing a dark past, and Tom, a school teacher, trespasses is a timely look at migration, loss and greed. That's all coming up today on Backstory. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, Clary is nine, and not being able to hear has helped him become something of a quiet observer, noticing everything. And now he and his mum are on an adventure to a new life. They already travelled from Ireland to England, and now they're leaving on a ship, the Steadfast, which will take them all the way to Australia. Billy, too, hopes for another chance. She has seen enough nightmare fuel nursing the dying in Scotland, and she has a lot to regret. But she's going on this journey for the money to be made as a migrant labourer. Tom has been struggling as a teacher in England among the poor and dying and now self-medicating to stave off having to think too much. He's heading into the unknown and already worried he's made a mistake. And things are about to go horribly. A crew member is murdered and people are starting to get really sick. Soon it's clear that all those aboard the steadfast can do is try to survive. But who can they trust in a sea of trouble? And so Meg Mundell's second novel, The Trespassers, set sail on the way, unpacking the migrant experience, the legacy of greed, and how we treat those who need the most compassion. Meg Mundell, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me, Mel. And it must be said, happy birthday. (laughs) You've outed me. It is, in fact, my birthday. And I can't think of a better way to spend it than talking about books that I love. Uh, This book that you've created is one that that feels incredibly timely. And I think you've done quite a nice little sleight of hand here where you kind of recreated, I guess, in a sense, how some people originally did come to Australia. uh, And they're now fleeing a kind of quite dystopic uh, 
you know, split up UK, uh, which again is something that very likely could happen mm. um, given what's happening with Brexit and all of the trouble at the moment, um, but perhaps not quite like this. Uh, Meg, what made you decide to write this book in this way? Because, it, you know, I can see that the ideas, you know, it's very much an ideas book, but it's, you know, really led by these quite humanist stories. So where did it come from? I guess it came from a few places and you can never really tell until after you've written the book where it's come from because you don't know what you've got until you've you've put it on the page. Uh, it came from my own experience travelling to Australia as a migrant on a boat, a very different kind of boat than um, the ones in the book. Uh, it also came from history. I borrowed from history, of course. The book said about 200 years after another ship called the Ticonderoga uh, arrived in Port Phillip Bay full of uh, very sick uh, migrant workers. So it drew from, from um, I guess, the colonial migrant experience there too. And, of course, what's happening, what's been happening over the past couple of decades with refugees and asylum seekers trying to come to Australia by boat as well. It's a bit of a mash-up. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really cleverly done because you've sort of got this, you know, futuristic setting which not too distant future um, but you have all of the elements of a kind of you know I guess Dickensian sort of uh, experience or earlier you know that sort of uh, original migrant experience uh, to Australia um, and you know all the echoes of what's happening now with asylum seekers so it really does feel like a rich story but I'd like to talk about the individual characters because uh, one of the great things about this this book is that you do see all of this world through the eyes of some some very plausible and um, you know characters that you can empathize with uh, tell me about where Clary comes from it's strange with characters because they do just really appear. You can build on them and you can imagine them and give them depth and richness, but they they seem to kind of come out of nowhere, almost arise of their own accord, and that's what happened with Cleary. I just I started uh, writing the book a long time ago, um, and um, fairly early on became a mother uh, to a young boy. So. Cleary manifested of his own accord, but I'm sure I borrowed things from my own child as I, you know, wrote the the final stages of the of the book. Um, he's I'm very fond of Cleary. I I love him a lot. He feels like a real person to me, and uh, I kind of miss him now. He's trapped inside this book. <laughs> I'm not following his adventures a anymore. Yeah, he's a really interesting character because in a in a way he sort of sees more than any of the other characters because he's really, you know, he's young and he's looking at the world quite differently as opposed to the adults and, and kids do tend to notice things. I think people don't always notice kids and, mm. and so they'll do things around them that, um, you know, that the children will see. And Claire is particularly good at observing, obviously, because um, he's spending a lot of his time trying to lip read or to make sense of a world uh, that he can't necessarily hear things in uh, but that he sees a lot more in uh, so that he's a very interesting way into this story. Uh, Billy is another character sort of a bit more of a hard-bitten character that um, that I, I think is quite interesting because you know you really do feel like Billy's fleeing um, you know something I won't give away too much uh, mm. Definitely um, horrible experiences of nursing the sick in this really devastating pandemic. Uh, it's important to note uh, that 
that what these characters are fleeing is really vast devastation, uh, a kind of plague that you really do associate with those sort of uh, 1700s travellers or 1800s travellers, the, mm. the kind that devastate places. But uh, she, you know, is going for the money. But, you know, where does her character go? Because she does go on quite a journey, yeah. Yeah, um, Billy's a, Billy's an interesting one. Again, she she kind of arose of her own accord. But I I always knew what she looked like. I always have a fairly clear idea of what my characters look like while I'm writing them. So she looks like PJ Harvey, <laughs> <laughs> but <it>. tougher, <laughs> tougher and a little bit uh, more hard edged. Uh, she's um, a Scottish woman in her late twenties. She's never had much to do with with kids, uh, but she has a, a talent which uh, she was born with. It was a fluke. Uh, she's got a beautiful voice she's a singer as well as having been a nurse's aide so she is a kind of a loner but her singing opens doors for her and connects her with people and that's how she comes to befriend some of the crew on on the ship and um yeah she gets caught up right in the, in the midst of the unfolding horror uh, she's kind of press ganged into helping the uh, nurse the second day on the ship she thought she'd escaped that but um something has come aboard with them and, um, yeah, there's no escape once you're on a ship at sea. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> no. Um, so she becomes something of a hero, I think, in the piece ultimately um, is what you're starting to feel. Um, and Tom is uh, another character that I think is sort of interesting because um, there's a lot of elements. You are pulling in a lot of these sort of, um, I guess, archetypes of, of that period literature where, you're, you know, you're, here's this, um, this character that's teach, that was teaching the sort of sick and dying and who, you know, has uh, their own sort of demons um, as well uh, and then are trying to kind of, you know, already sort of... Um, not quite sure where they're headed on this journey but are already starting to feel worried about where it's taking them. Tell me about Tom. Oh, Tom's a bit of a worrywart. I'm very fond of him as well. He's come from a, a fairly you know, wealthy upper-class family who, who lost their money in some unspecified crash. So he's found himself levelled to... Uh, he, he's lost the status of that upper class, uh, you know, space that he used to occupy, and um, he's got a really good heart. He's a, quite a nervous sort of individual. He's he's probably taking more of his uh, medication than is, is strictly uh, being prescribed yeah. <laughs> for him. Um, he kind of feels like a um, you know opium opium eating kind of Dickensian <laughs> in my mind. Um, you know, very a very Dickens kind of character. He's sort of yeah. like fallen into hard times. Yeah, but he, I mean, he he worries about um, teaching. Is he good at it? You know, as a lot of us do with our jobs, am I doing it right? I, I, you know, these kids are relying on me. Am I am I cut out for this? Or maybe I'm too much of a, an anxious sort of person to deal with this. But during the journey, he actually, he, he goes through a pretty horrific time and he actually finds, uh, finds a place in the world for himself in that he's able to support these kids as they're going through this horrible time and distract them from what's going on around them and cre- create a bit of a world world for them and of course he's also a connecting character with um with Cleary and Tom it's very strange how you make these people or you conjure up these people and then they start doing stuff that you did not foresee and it's very odd and I think that's part of the excitement of writing for me they like for example Tom has a little bit of a shipboard romance early on now I didn't see that coming Tom 
saw this really hot sailor and um, the two of them had a romantic assignation in a in a closet and it, it's it's not something that I think that's the magic of writing it's not something that I, I deliberately planned to put into the book but Tom kind of that's what the direction he was going I'm all right Tom all right <laughs> follow you into his closet <laughs> that's great it's sort of an interesting um it's interesting because I think maybe how you've written it seems uh, seems to really facilitate that kind of accidental collision, I guess. Uh, each of the chapters is divided into quite evenly, I feel, into the perspectives of each of these three characters that we've talked about. And it does sort of feel like the, the drama then, um, you know, really kind of builds from, you know, their personal interactions within each of those sections and then their kind of collisions with one another. Was that a deliberate um, structure that you set up or did you kind of, you know, find that you ultimately just fell into that um, by virtue of, of these characters driving the story? Well, I've always liked writing from different perspective uh, perspectives. I've liked doing different voices. I really enjoy that. So I enjoy sort of hopping into in between different consciousnesses. <laughs> Uh, so, and because of the way I write, I have to be quite disciplined about it. So I would set myself, you know, daily word targets and just having that structure of a, a chapter with three perspectives in it <clears throat> just helped me to build the book together as a bit of a jig- jigsaw puzzle, I guess. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Meg Mundell about her novel, The Trespassers, which is an incredibly interesting dystopic tale uh, that sort of echoes uh, the original sort of, uh, you know, settlers and migrants to Australia, their journey from a fractured England or fractured UK um, is very much uh, something of now in the book, The Trespassers. There is also that undeniable theme that we've already touched on of, you know, how this really colours the the way Australia treats migrants mm. and the way Australia treats those who should get compassion. There's a lot unwritten here that I think mm. is really interesting. Talk to me about how you do this with books because I'm fascinated about, uh, you know, that kind of interplay between really writing a story that is you know, gripping, that you care about the characters and then having these really important things you want to talk about underneath it all? I think it's really important not to hit people over the head with things. I I want people to read this book who don't particularly share my political views. I want them to still enjoy the story. I'm not interested in writing something that's didactic or that that, uh, tries to force an opinion. What I like to do is to try to open up people to feeling uh, the emotions of the characters, feeling their situation, putting themselves in the character's place and thinking, oh, well, what would I do here? Um, I think it's also really important to leave gaps in the story that readers fill in with their own imagination because writing and reading is a collaboration. It's not a one-way street. The reader constructs the story in their own individual way. Um, As to signalling particular things that are happening in the world and our treatment of outsiders in Australia, it's a very weird, conflicted uh, relationship that we have with migrants in Australia. Um, the traditional owners of this land uh, must, must find this very strange that you know, people invaded their country and then after a certain amount of time it was like, F off, we're full. 
so where does you know where does that come from? Um, who belongs? Who's allowed to belong? Uh, I found that really fascinating as a mig- a white migrant myself who was given a very easy welcome here. Although I wasn't fleeing anything horrific, I was just coming here on an adventure. I actually came here on a boat too. Um, but in terms of uh, signalling. Uh, dropping hints throughout the book, what I did was try to pop in a few iconic images or or things that felt familiar to us visually. For example, uh, you remember the children overboard scandal. Mm. There's a scene in the book where there's a fire and uh, the people are trapped on the ship and I just put in uh, some images of a parent holding a child hanging over the edge and, and saying, you know, get the kids off get the kids off the ship. And so just by planting these little familiar things that we've seen in news stories, just an image here and there, I just wanted to flash up little reminders of things that have happened in our own recent history so mm. that to, to make those, so the reader can make those connections themselves. There's also that idea of the plague as well, and I, I was thinking a lot about that. There's a reason Camus selected that as a, a, a way of sort of, I guess, talking about, um, you know, the war and um, talking about how people treat other people in extremists mm. and the different uh, qualities that brings up. And I think that, that really those aboard the Steadfast are starting to exhibit some of those, you know, those things. Like what do you do when you're, you know, when it's, it could be about every person for themselves? Mm. You know, how do you behave? Mm. Um, how do you show compassion? Um, it's a really, it's a great kind of um, microcosm of, of you know, to explore those things in. Was that a deliberate uh, choice? Uh, not not any re- uh, reference to Camus, but uh, the, the idea of the, of the plague came, I guess, from history, um, from the ship, the Ticonderoga, which um, Michael Veach has also written. I hope I've said his name right. He's written a beautiful book called Hell Ship. We've recently connected with each other and posted the books to each other. And we're hopefully going to catch up soon and talk about uh plagues and scots and um so but so the ticonderoga was a real ship and that uh i think 170 people died on that journey Mm. coming uh, migrant workers coming to victoria to help with the wool clip uh 200 years ago so that's where the idea of the plague came from but it's also uh i mean ebola was happening while i was writing some of this book uh, so I guess it, a plague is a symbolic of a social breakdown and of things going out of control. And also it makes me think of the idea of borders, you know, borders between countries, borders between people, borders where something infectious might cross over. And and the way that we protect borders might not necessarily be logical in all cases. You want to protect yourself from germs, but you don't always have to protect yourself from people who look different from you and also the microcosm of the ship it's like a real pressure cooker situation that's exciting to write because it does put the characters in extremists and your character is tested when you're in a situation like that so it can be really revealing I don't want to give too much else away about the book but I do feel like you have managed to sort of tie all those things in together and and give a sense of you know I guess the way in which um, you know people do look at at those coming from somewhere else you know in a way like you know I I guess in both positive and negative ways Um, it's it's really done so in such a fascinating way in this book Meg Mundell thank you so much for coming on today on Backstory to talk about the book and I wish you the best of luck with it. Thanks, Mel. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Jane is a young Filipina-American, a migrant, trying her hardest to make a life for her child and herself. So when her business-savvy cousin Evelyn, or Ate, older sister as everyone knows her, recommends she becomes a surrogate or host at Golden Oaks carrying a baby for a wealthy client, Jane doesn't see that she has many other options, even if it means leaving her young daughter for nearly a year. May Yu has set up Golden Oaks with all the fittings of a high-class yoga retreat, organic food, massages, fitness regimes and wristbands that track the host's every move. May Yu knows how to turn a profit and looks at Jane and so-called premium hosts like Reagan, American-born with an Ivy League education and a do-gooder streak like highly strung cash cows that have to be handled properly to get the results her uber-wealthy clients demand. But what happens when Jane starts to worry about her daughter or Reagan starts to wonder about who her clients are? This is the setting for the farm, a complex exploration of race, class and the vast inequities of a world where money can buy anything, all played out around the labour of childbearing and rearing. US-based author Joanne Ramos was in Melbourne earlier this week and I caught up with her to talk about this incredibly relevant book. Joanne Ramos, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. So your book, The Farm, really is quite an extraordinary novel. Every time I sort of felt like I'd gotten a character peg or pegged or a storyline pegged, it went off in a completely different direction or a more complex, nuanced direction. And I suspect very strongly that this is because you have based much of this story on on real stories that you gathered from people you had met or things you'd observed. Can you talk a little bit about where this book came from? Yeah, so I, you know, I didn't start writing it until I was in my my 40s. Um, But the ideas behind it are ones that I've been thinking about for most of my life. Uh, And they're really rooted in straddling worlds or feeling like I was always straddling worlds, whether as a Filipina immigrant to Wisconsin, as a financial aid kid at Princeton University, as one of the few women on Wall Street when I was on Wall Street, and then as a mother in New York City, living a life of a lot greater privilege than I was used to from how I'd grown up, uh, and, and realizing the only Filipinas I knew were the nannies and the housekeepers and the baby nurses of people in my orbit. And, and many of these women reflexively, reflexively were proud of me just because I was from where they were from and I'd made it. And I say made it. With a lot of uh, – it's a, kind of a loaded phrase for me because it, the book really is about my questioning of this idea of meritocracy on which I was raised and what that really means um, in America today and maybe always. There are so many inextricable intersectionalities in this book that it is impossible to kind of unpick everything, but it works so perfectly because of that because you do get the complexity of these relationships and how kind of, I guess, capitalism or, you know, this extreme form of capitalism is at the root of it all. So the farm, uh, you know, or Golden Oaks, as it is known in the book, uh, 
is really a place where you start to see, even within the hosts, these kind of differences in life uh, outcomes based on who they were born as, where they were born, were they originally American citizens or not. And on top of that, the the complexities of race within those those settings. So I thought there was a really interesting moment, and I just want to pause to talk about Ate, Evelyn, who yes. is this, you know, she's a strange character because she's both a little bit of a Svengali in and of herself, mm-hmm. but also this inc- a character you can really empathise with. Everything she is doing, she's done for her children, uh, who she doesn't get to spend any time with either. They're back in the Philippines. But she also is very hard-headed. And there's one point in the book when she ponders what her life might have been like had she been born in the US. And I think that that was one of those moments that really encapsulates that sort of the gap in privilege. Can you talk a bit about how that's working through some of those characters? Yeah, so Ate, and that means, you know, big sister in in Tagalog, she is um, this much older baby nurse. Uh, And I really wanted to have a character who had worked for most of her life for towards the American dream, but wasn't yet and maybe never would be a beneficiary of this kind of elusive American dream. Um, you know, in, in the, the bit that you're talking about, she says basically that if she were born in America, given that she has a business mind and savvy and she's a hustler, basically, that, uh, that she would have made it because in America, you just need money and you can, and you can make it. And, 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 Clearly, that's not true because there are other characters who work just as hard as she does in the book and, and, and haven't made it. But in her mind, that is true. And, you know, I must say, growing up, being raised by my Filipino parents in the States, um, knowing um, you know, my relatives or my parents would, would say that to me, that, that, that we've made a life in our new country and we never could have had the lives that we had back in the Philippines. So I, don't, I think that's a very common held notion. And I was raised to really believe in the American dream and probably did believe in it until I went to university and met for the first time kids who had never held jobs would never need to and took it as a given. Didn't even think they'd won the lottery, but really were took it with a great sense of entitlement that I wasn't used to. And that's really it was really in university that I started to question this whole notion of of what a meritocracy is and and this narrative that allows us to explain away and kind of excuse the glaring inequality in America. Because if it's a meritocracy, then you kind of deserve it when it's unequal, right? And and it's just not it's just not true. And that really was impetus for this book. And also the the real benefits that characters get when they actually they do something opportunistic. Yes. It's it's almost like that, you know, the entire system, well, it's almost like the entire system is clearly built for those who think about themselves primarily and ignore the impacts uh, that their life have on others. And that affects characters at every single level of the society that you've created. I do want to talk about individual characters and their roles in, in each of these kind of storylines. There is, of course, Jane, who is a character that, you know, you're really coming in through, uh, you know, her story and her relationship uh, at the start with Ate, who sort of really seems to be someone who's on her side to begin with. Can you talk a bit about Jane and, and who she is? Yeah, so so the the book really started with Jane. Um, well before I had the idea of a surrogacy facility, um, I was kind of tinkering around um, a book about Jane, who is a young Filipina, a single mother with a newborn baby, uh, whom she wants to give a better life, but she's not very educated um, and she doesn't have very many options. Uh, and so I was really interested in this idea of someone who would need to leave her baby at home or sacrifice time with her baby to raise someone else's child. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I know a number of women, of so many women, actually, just in my time raising my kids and getting to know a lot of other um, or a lot of domestic workers who, who are very similar to Jane in not only in their lack of options, but in, in their lack of a belief that they deserve better. Uh, and I have found myself not lecturing, but giving advice to some of these friends of mine saying, you need to advocate for yourself. You have to stand up for yourself. You have to, but it's very easy for me to say that as someone of privilege, it's a really different thing to be on the other side of that equation. uh, Because I think that fighting for your rights, fighting for better life takes some measure of privilege. And that really is who Jane is. And so suddenly she has opportunity to work at the farm. She just has to carry someone else's baby and she can make the kind of life-changing money that can change her daughter Molly's life for good. Who wouldn't do that? Now, I've heard readers say they never would. I think until you've been in a situation that that's, that is that constrained, how do you know? And that's really, those sort of choices are the ones that I wanted to to sort of interrogate. There, there can be a feeling of frustration when you're reading Jane's character where you want to sort of get up there and fight for her or help her fight. And it's really interesting how you then use that when you create the character of Reagan, uh, who I really feel like is a cipher for that sort of motivation in a reader to mm-hmm. to kind of hop in and try and save Jane. Uh, talk about Reagan because I just think she's a very interesting character in this book. Yeah, and she was the hardest, by far the hardest of the four um, sort of narrators to to write. So Reagan is um, a young college graduate. She's educated. She's a privileged. She's a young white woman, and she decides to be a host at the farm for her own reasons, mostly to get out of the grip of her father, the financial grip, but also because she wants to help help someone carry a child. And I think help in general. She's someone who wants to figure out um, a way to be in the world, given her privilege. And so she sees Jane and and kind of. Um, befriends her and wants to help her. She's sort of characterized as this sort of typical woke, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, you know, character that we like to satirize quite a lot. But but her character does undergo a change, a transformation in this book where you start to realize she's genuine uh, in what she feels. But, you know, the limitations of what she can do and, and how she can advocate are sort of made really stark. Can you talk a bit about how that works out? I don't want you to give away too many plot yeah. twists. No, you, you know, it's funny because I, in either in reviews or in talking to readers and my talks, people will talk about her white privilege, white privilege, but I would peel away the white because I, I would say as someone who now has a lot more privilege than I had growing up, um, it's something I think about a lot. How do I want to be in the world given that I have lucked out, right? In, in many ways, I've worked hard, but I've also really lucked out. And how, how do you really help versus feel like you're helping, but really you're just trying to make yourself feel better. Um, and so I, I put a lot of that into Reagan. And so I actually dispute the notion that it's a white thing, right? Like I think it's for many of us who would like to be able to look ourselves in the mirror, knowing that we in life's lottery, we have been beneficiaries. I think we do think about these things. And that is really what Reagan is. And what was hard in writing her was, one, to make her believable, two, to make her not a white savior. Because I, didn't th- I really didn't think of her that way. I, I think there's a lot of myself in her, and I'm, not, I'm from the Philippines. So um, she, I wrote and rewrote and rewrote again her chapters for months 
And then sometimes I'd ditch the whole chapter and then start again. She was really hard. But she's a wonderfully nuanced character, I think, as a result, and does sort of show you, she's a very nice foil to to Jane's voice because she shows you a lot of the ways in which Jane's kind of learned um, helplessness has evolved. You know, that that this really has been, Jane is the way she is because she survives that way. Um, And you can see that through Reagan's eyes um, a lot more that, you know, in fact, the privilege of freedom uh, of having certain personal liberties is is something that it's almost impossible from that perspective to understand the opposite. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's funny I didn't map that out. Um, the characters just end up writing them, and now that you're saying that, I think that is true. <laughs> but I hadn't really mapped it out beforehand. Someone pointed out to me there are a lot of that, that, that sort of pairing in the book, like Mayu and, and Ate. Mayu runs the farm have a lot of things in common as well. But it wasn't it wasn't a structure that I had really thought about. It, it kind of came organically. I would love to talk now about Mayu because she is probably, you know, the the most kind of unreconstructed villain of the piece that you really don't you don't really get much opportunity to empathize with her character. But I think you have, you know, have laid some groundwork for showing why she is the way she is, that she is this kind of hard hard, heavily capitalist, you know, self, you know, opportunistic, self-interested character. But as you say, by almost a reflection of her and Ate, you start to sort of get a sense of who she might be. Talk about Mayu. Where did she come from? So um, Mayu is the half Chinese and half Caucasian woman who runs the farm. And she's in many ways what some people might think of as the culmination of the American dream, right? Like she's worked her way up to where she is. She's the first woman managing director at this big conglomerate. She's, if you think about it, she's very good to the people in her orbit that she recognizes. Um, she tries to be a mentor to the, her assistant. She's good to her parents. She um, she has a roommate from college who's a public school teacher, and she helps her out. So I wanted to have a character in the book, once I came up with the surrogacy facility idea, who was a beneficiary of and a great believer in the system. And I actually did not want her to be a through and through villain because I feel in much milder forms, I know, and probably we all know many people like her in the sense of people who may not think very much about how their job or their choices impact other people, but to the people they love, they're good. They're materialistic and that they want a nice handbag or a nice life. And they work hard for that. And they just don't think much more outside of that. And maybe in their job, they compromise a little bit, or in her case, a lot. But, you know, I know people who work at museums that take money from oil companies or pharmaceuticals that make opioids. Um, I think I walk by homeless people every day in New York. And I just walk by now. You know, sometimes I'll give money, sometimes I won't. I think we all make compromises because the system is pretty clearly flawed and unequal. And we all make our own compromises somewhere along the spectrum to, to, to live with it, right? And so she's an extreme form of that. But I really, that's what I was interested in exploring. Not necessarily making her so bad that you, she had a, was twirling well, her little evil belie- mustache. She's believable, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's terrifying yeah. about her is that she is a character that, you know, that she is someone that, that could exist and does exist. And you can see the self-justifications of her life uh, in a way that is actually very chilling. I think in some ways, though, uh, may you kind of, you know, she at least is close to the women who are being, and let's face facts, exploited Mm -hmm. on the farm, regardless of whether or not some of them end up with a, a nice payday. 
at the end of it, they're very much being manipulated. Their lives are being controlled uh, in ways that no one's lives should be controlled. So it's really a picture of, of the ultimate form of capitalism in that respect, especially when it comes to children and their place in people's lives. But she's at least there having to face up to the realities of that. Whereas I guess if we're going to look at the real villains of the piece, it is in fact capitalism itself, but also the people who are using those farms. The clients, the right? Clients. You don't have to see what goes into it and just get this perfect baby at the end. Exactly. And I think that's the real shadow element of it is that that's the implication for the reader is that who are we, the people off the page that that we can support a system like this. And I think you've constructed that really nicely. So Mayu is really the opportunist that's facilitating this, but society is what's sustaining it. So I suppose it's also like if you look at any number of items that we buy um, that 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 only exists because of child labor in a foreign country and you can blame the people who own that factory. But if you're buying, same thing, right? If you're back in New York City buying that bag or that iPhone or whatever it is, you're complicit. You may not want to admit it, but you're complicit. And I, and I do think, so I think to your point, that is her role and also the client's role. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to Joanne Ramos uh, about The Farm, her chilling novel that kind of really dives straight into the world of surrogacy, but in a way that's really interesting and explores intersectionality, race, uh, and this idea of, of where capitalism can take us and has taken us. I want to talk about the writing of this book uh, particularly because you have passed the narrative baton between the different characters, but you've done it in a way that, you know, that is slow burning. So we are very much starting in the perspectives of, you know, of Ate and, uh, or sorry, of Jane, one of the, the early characters that we enter the book through. Can you explain your choices about when you decided to enter the, the kind of perspectives of each of the characters and, and how you did that for impact in the novel? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, the book started with Jane. I really wanted the, the core of it or the heart to be this young mother who had to leave her child to take care of someone else's child. And I already had the idea of Ate as well. And, and, and partially is that I know these women. I know they're, they're amalgamations of women that I've come to know. Um, once I came up with the idea of a surrogacy facility, then I wanted the believer in the system. That became Mayu. And then because I'm so interested in these questions of privilege and 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 how some people start out so ahead in life. I wanted Reagan. I wanted someone who, who wasn't, who didn't have to be at the farm, but chose to be at the farm. So that's how those four voices came to be. Um, and then I toyed with other voices. It just seemed too many. I was like, should I have a client in there? Should I, you know, and, 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 and four um, was already a lot. So I left it at that. Um, so the funny things I don't outline. Uh, I felt very guilty for not outlining for the first two years of this process because I thought that I was supposed to. And so the, I mean, I know this probably isn't a great answer. The, the chapters sort of ended when they ended. And then I would decide what perspective made sense to go next. And how you read the book is actually how I wrote it. I wrote it in this way. And, and it could be that I get bored quite easily. And so it really helped me to get to change voices and, and even mindsets every so often. In the editing, it became a little trickier. I had to edit it by person and then edit it again as you read it just to mm. make sure there weren't clashes or or inconsistencies but i really wrote it as it unfolds and there was no bigger plan than that it did really feel like that worked though because you were you know you kind of got that next perspective when you needed to get it just to really undercut your expectations or change where things 
you know, where you expected things to go. Right. So I think it, it it made it feel more real in many ways. So I think that worked. I also want to um, ask why Ate was known as older sister throughout the whole book. And there was a little, and I don't want to say she is an Aunt Lydia, but there, I couldn't help but draw that parallel in my head. There has been some kind of comparison made between your book and, and The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood's obviously dystopic classic that's been turned into a quite successful TV series. I would say that the main parallels are obviously this idea of uh, one group of women being enforced to you know, bear the children of another and, and the complexities of that. So there are definitely parallels to be made. But I wonder, was there a bigger point being made with making her this older sister character? Because I, she is a, she obviously is a much more empathetic character than an Aunt Lydia, but was there an element of, of that there? You know, it, it's, it really was as simple as she was the oldest person at the dormitory in Queens, where many of these domestic workers would rent beds for a half day to save money, and that is very much based on real places in Queens um, and, and a place that many, not many, but let's say half a dozen of my domestic worker friends have spent time living in, in these type of dormitories um, in their lives. She was the oldest person there. And in the Philippine culture, the oldest person is, you, you call them big sister, you call them ate. And in, in the book, when you read it, if you read it, um, a lot of people at that dormitory look up to her and look, seek advice from her and get loans mm. from her. Or, and so she really had that, that, that role. Yeah, it does make sense. I just, I did mm-hmm. wonder though. There's this little because there's these tiny little echoes right. there. If there, you know, if there wasn't that kind of notion, I did think as well though. The the real thing that comes out of it is this idea of, you know, when we're talking about feminism in a modern context, that the idea of helping a woman get ahead, which Miss You in many ways sort of seems to be trying to do for the women in her orbit, is supposedly that that idea of feminism in this very, uh, I guess liberal or uh, smaller liberal sense that you're supposed to be uh, helping people get ahead in the capitalist construct. But I think what you're increasingly seeing in this book is that you can't look at women uh, as a as a collective block, as a group that work together when there are these vaster divisions of race, of wealth, of you know, life expectancies uh, within that context, and especially when it comes to this this question of childbearing and child rearing, and who does the the labour in that? Quite literally. No, I think I think that's right. It it it, and it's a false notion that you can lump all women together as supposed to be you know supporting each other. I mean, I, I could I was able to work and continue working as a journalist at the Economist because I had women, a woman helping me, my nanny. And and I hope that she would say that I supported her and did right by her. But let's be honest, there is a real inequality in our relationship that is just intrinsic to that relationship. Um, I was on a radio program in London where someone um, called it the intimate inequality in a home when, when you're outsourcing parts of parenthood. And that, I think, is exactly right. And, and, and my book pushes it to the extreme, right, with pregnancy. But these questions are ones that any of us who've used, not used, who's, who've had help in our home um, face, whether we, whether we want to admit it or not. Look, this, uh, I don't want to really give away too much more about the farm. It is an extraordinary book. Thank I think you. I can really feel the humanism throughout it. You don't give any easy answers. It doesn't necessarily go where you would hope or where you think. Uh, but I, I feel like there's so much in this that will spark more conversations. And it feels like a very necessary book for now. Joanne Ramos, thank you so much for joining me on Backstory thank you. today. Thank you.
Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.